Welcome to the Just Larson Show on Innovation and Leadership. On this episode, I'm really excited to have Michael Sonnefeld. Michael, thank you. thanks for doing this. Great to be here. So, um, author of a great book, Think Bigger, uh, founder of Tiger 21, we're going to talk a lot about, um, previously built billion-dollar real estate funds, um, doing a lot in philanthropy and making the world better. W- what did I miss there? I'm a photographer, design my own clothes, and love to sail. Well, let's start with, with Tiger 21. Um, l- last numbers I knew on it, it's, it's 1,200 members that manage about $140 billion, kind of like, it's almost like graduate school if you were in YPO or, or Vistage or something, and you're an entrepreneur and had the big exit, and uh, this is kind of that, that transition from being a passionate entrepreneur focused on one thing to becoming a wealth preserver and, and learning this new skill set of, now, now, uh, now what do I do? Is it? Is that a good pitch or how would you describe it better? Uh, I don't think I could have said it better, Jess. I think, I think what's interesting is uh, many of our members are former and current members of uh, YPO and Vistage, which are sort of the two great colleges. This is for CEOs. Uh, they're fantastic organizations. They're both about 70 years old and uh, they're the breeding ground from which they create entrepreneurs who drive successful exits. And when they uh, have that exit, uh, very often they graduate to Tiger 21, whose focus uh, is purely the wealth preservation after the exit. Although many of our members continue to be entrepreneurs and continue to create wealth at uh, significant speeds. When you think about the entrepreneurs that make that transition the best, what are the things that help them change modes or what, what are patterns that you see for people who can, can change gears? Well, first of all, obviously there's a lot of different reasons. Somebody might sell a business. Uh, you could get in trouble and be forced to sell, but that's not the example of most of our members. Most of our members are making, uh, what I would call a mature life choice to get off the merry-go-round of some sort. They've been living kind of on the edge. They've been pressing the pedal. They're going a million miles an hour and they've created enough wealth that they know when they sell their business, the wealth accretion might not be as fast, but the risk of the portfolio might be dramatically less because now they can diversify into a whole bunch of different assets and not have the kind of pressures. And I think you know, this distinction is something that very few people have the luxury of thinking about of what's the difference between a wealth creator and a wealth preserver, because uh, it's sort of the same question as the difference between an entrepreneur and an investor, although not exactly. And the psychologies are quite different. But, you know, what I like to say is that the Eskimos have nine different words for what we call that white stuff, snow, and each one means something different. And so the distinction between entrepreneurs and investors for most people on the street might not be such a huge distinction, but if you're one or the other or one becoming the other, it's a huge distinction and uh, you have to know where you sit. Yeah. When you think about making that transition and and the mindset differences, what are the things that help entrepreneurs who decide, ah, I would like to have less pressure. It's, it's maybe time to enjoy a little more and, and have a little less uh, sleepless nights. What are things that help them make that transition? Well, 
First of all, it would be realism. In other words, uh, when you're an entrepreneur and earning much higher returns in all probability, if you're a successful entrepreneur, you have to think through what it means after you sell your business that you're more likely to earn passive returns that are going to be significantly less. And so there's one phenomenon that uh, we call sticker shock. Very often an entrepreneur sells a business, and I'm just making an example. Let's say the business gets sold for $20 million. That might be because the business has earnings of maybe $3 million and it gets sold for six or seven times earnings. And all of a sudden you sell it for 20 million, you pay taxes, you're left with 16 million. And, you know, until recently, you could only earn two or 3% if you put that. So all of a sudden your 16 million is earning $320,000. So you went from earning $3 million a year as the business owner to earning $300,000 as a passive investor. And obviously there's every different variation on the theme. But in almost every case where you have an operating business that sells at a multiple of a six or a seven percent, uh, six or seven times the multiple of the earnings, that's kind of about a 16% return. And you're tra trading in for assets that you could only earn two or 3% on. Obviously, your income is going to go down. So you have to really prepare for that and be realistic because some people haven't thought through and it, it can be a really shocking destabilizing piece. Uh, but the other thing is that you have to really think about what you want to do with your life. Do you want to be more in the learning area, more in the giving or philanthropic area? Do you want to spend more time with your family? And all of these things, by the way, have intrinsic value. You don't have to measure them in dollars and cents, but you're trading off the you know, 20 hours a day or 16 hours a day you were working for 30 years to build the business to now look up and look around and see the world in a, a new light. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've followed you over the years and watched your interviews with everyone else, it's actually exciting to actually be talking to you. But um, one of the things that's interesting is, uh, as you've talked about kind of the rise of private equity in, in your members' portfolios, can you talk about that for people who maybe aren't as familiar? It's, it's, uh, it's the single most extraordinary shift in how wealth preservers understand how to preserve wealth. Uh, 15 years ago, private equity was 10% of our average member's portfolio at the time. You know, today our average member statistically has over $100 million of investments. And it was probably about half that about 15 years ago. Uh, but the point was that private equity was about 10% of the assets. And today, it's just topped in the most recent quarter, 28 or 29%. And no other asset class has moved around as much. Uh, it's it's uh, what the geologists would call a tectonic shift. And the real question is, why, why has that happened? Um, and, uh, you know, you can never know 100% for sure. But one of the reasons is that when we were in such a prolonged low interest rate environment, not, you know, it's a little less so today. Um, what it meant was that the average returns that you were going to get on your investments were not as much as people were hoping for. You know, I have a 
a relative who sold a business in uh, 1978 or nine or something. I forget what year it was. And uh, interest rates uh, were like 14, 15, 16%. You could actually buy municipal bonds with a 14% tax-free rate. And if you imagine a $5 million sale that bought 14% bonds, they were getting $700,000 of tax-free income. And not too long ago, you'd have to have $20 million to get that same $700,000 of tax-free income. So it's amazing that people think about money as if they have a sense of its solidity. But if the earning power of 5 million a few years ago is the same as the earning power of 20 million a few months ago, what, how do you make sense of that? It's, uh, it's really crazy. So understanding what you're going to do to preserve your wealth and what your budget is and what you can expect is uh, one of the biggest challenges that people who sell businesses go through as they come to grapple with this uh, new, very fortunate reality, but it still is a reality. In your mind, what are some of the things that that uh, great private equity operators have done to attract those dollars? Well, the two most exquisite managers of debt are the private equity managers and the real estate managers. Their businesses, particularly on the LBO side, not on the venture capital side. On the LBO side, a successful LBO operator has to be an exquisite manager of debt exposures so that they can uh, do good do business in in good and bad times um but you know a private equity manager is really where you can shine the most important thing that a man named Swenson who used to manage Yale's endowment and who is the sort of standard bearer for endowments um you know, what Swenson uh, talked about is um, in the public equities, how much more can the best manager make than a mediocre manager? What's the gap in performance? And when you go through the different asset classes, it turns out that the best bond managers compared to the average bond managers might make you less than a percent more. Uh, and the best a uh, public equity manager might only make you two or three points on average, but the best private equity manager might make you 15% more. And his point is that if you only have a small amount of time, the search for the best public equity manager doesn't yield such great additional results. You may as well put it in an index fund, but the search for the best private equity manager will give you perform outperformance that uh, rewards the search. And you think about maybe some slightly more hostile views towards private equity or skeptical views. What do you think the industry did to overcome some of those and, and attract more LPs? You know, we have an evolving notion in this country of what the purpose of business is. Uh, Milton Friedman in the uh, 60s, a very famous, very conservative economist said that the sole purpose of a business is to enrich its shareholders. And today, uh, recently, uh, when I wrote the book, there had been a, 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 a poll that had suggested that millennials overwhelmingly think 
uh, the purpose of the corporation is to have a positive impact on society. And you have to think about how that view has changed. And obviously, it's not monolithic or one way or another, uh, but um, it's clear that there are broader constituencies than just shareholders in many, certainly public companies, uh, approach to what they're doing. And, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't maximize opportunity or maximize shareholder value. It just can't come at the expense of taking advantage or polluting or breaking laws or uh, doing harmful things to the environment. Uh, I think that's the, the main uh, takeaway of what's changed over the years. Yeah. Um, you, you brought up real estate a minute ago. Um, can you talk about kind of historical numbers and, and why it's been such a big portion of your members' portfolio over the years? Sure. Um, real estate is the most unusual category. On the one hand, if you had some way to break down the entire economic activity of our country in every field, medicine, ditch diggers, astronauts, you know, figure out and you broke them down and you could come up with around 10 categories like the Dewey Decimal System in the library. And if real estate was one of them, I would argue that real estate is more different than the other nine than any of the other nine are from each other. It's a very strange thing. Many of the other nine might be technology plays where you have to have deeply advanced degrees. Real estate became a Wall Street and corporate game about a generation ago. In other words, if you uh, looked at real estate 30 years ago, the largest owners of real estate were the families that had evolved over 100 years. But eventually, the corporate titans dwarfed, even though those, those families exist, very successful. But Blackstone probably has you know 20 or 50 times more real estate than any one of those families. Um, so there's a lot more MBAs and Wall Street types in real estate, but it still is a bit of a different phenomenon. And I think one of the ways to think about it is other than natural resources, meaning owning you know, a forest that won't mature for 50 years, real estate forces the owner to look into the future much further forward than what most other industries do. Most other businesses are dealing in year-to-year -year sales. And therefore, the metrics and the instincts, real estate people have an instinct that many other people don't have. But it's amazing to me how many people don't invest in real estate because to them it's boring and doesn't why they don't see the paint dry because they lose sight of what Einstein said, which was that the most powerful force in the universe is compounding. And uh, real estate is the example where you have assets that can compound on their own uh, over 10, 20, 30, 40 year periods. And even though it's not the top performer each year, the cumulative effect of it is just extraordinary. So the answer is um, real estate is attractive because of its cash flow. You know, you get to sign long term contracts with your tenants. Generally, they have to pay. And that allows you to have businesses that have, uh, you know, what the rest of the world these days is calling annual recurring revenue. That's the mantra in the technology world. But it all comes from the value 
if every if the if a business you have is dependent on every day opening up the store and having to make a sale that day and you never know what's going to happen that's a very different type of business than one where you can count on recurring revenue for very long periods of time yeah um and what would you guess is is real estate makes up as far as the you know, you look across the members, you know, you take the private real estate, the public real estate, what, what percentage portfolios would you guess it is? It's about 25%. What's interesting is uh, real estate for the first uh, 13 or 14 years that we polled our members was king. And uh, just in the last quarter is the first time private equity, I believe, was ever king. And real estate had fallen uh, along with uh, public equity. Public equity obviously fell primarily because the markets fell this year. And so uh, uh, public equity was around 29% and ended the year, uh, at least the fourth quarter, around 25%. And real estate had been as high as the low 30s and uh, is now in the mid to low 20s. And that's, that's, an ex- that's almost as big on the downside as private equity is on the upside, but the private equity move is a much bigger one. Well, so many of our members have made money in real estate. And you know, you have to remember that real estate is not a monolith. Uh, the way in which industrial real estate and commercial real estate, office, retail, uh, sports, entertainment, hotel, all of these things operate in sort of spaces completely on their own and independent of one another. and uh, But the one thing that affects real estate above all else are interest rates, because that's that when you asked about real uh, interest rates, you can't finance real estate without incurring a loan. And uh, the changing interest rates is really uh, the, the single factor that, that goes across all real estate assets. Yeah. Um, what's your guesstimate on real estate over the next decade or two? You know, my partner used to say the deal of a lifetime crosses your desk every week if you're willing to look for it. And uh, in any given environment, there are assets that are being sold by people that are forced to sell. uh, And uh, you don't want to be a forced seller. And if you're a buyer and you have the resources, you can buy them. Uh, but generally, um, if you're asking a, a, a broad question, residential real estate will be the most stable of the real estate areas. People are, you know, we only have so many people in so many apartments and so many houses, and the shift won't be very profound. Um, retail is in a heap of trouble. The transformation of our economy to the Amazon and, uh, a remotely delivered last mile asset. The online shopping experience uh, is continuing to dramatically change forever the retail space. It's probably only going one way, very difficult. Um, you have a complete disintermediation, a few great malls continuing to do well. But if you're a mediocre, mediocre, mediocre mall, you're probably in more. Uh, a little more challenged situation. Um, the the superstar of superstars in the last three years has been industrial space because with all of the shift to internet sales, 
it's the last mile delivery that has taken certain types of real estate through the roof. If you were an owner of industrial real estate, particularly from which distribution takes place to stores or directly to home, you've had the best three years of a 30-year period probably. And the one which is intellectually the most interesting is office, because we really don't know what the office of the future is going to be like anymore. Very few offices are functioning as they ever did. People know they want to get together, but they don't want to get together five days a week. Maybe they want to get together three days a week. And so you have all these new models, but uh, office space, uh, except for the very most successful firms that are willing to pay astronomical prices for showcase office places, the fundamental office business is uh, probably more in transition even than retail, but in ways that we can't yet figure out. It's just too early to know. Yeah. You know, um, maybe one last one. I think about it maybe as almost a, a subset of, of hospitality. Um, do you have any predictions about the kind of institutional or, or sub-institutional players in kind of the Airbnb type of space? When you look back 100 years ago where the value in the hotel chain was, and it was the people who owned the hotels, and then all of a sudden you had the franchise operators um, like Marriott and Starwood. They don't own the hotels. They own the reservation system. They're more valuable than the bricks and mortar themselves. And then you had Airbnb that uh, came along and they're more valuable than even the others. So you have this digitization, even in the real estate space, that the bricks and mortar are the least valuable part of that chain. It's the, uh, it's the connection to the consumer through uh, online channels where the uh, valuations go high. I think, I think Airbnb and now there are, of course, multiple variations on Airbnb. There's VRBO and a couple other ones coming up, and there's uh, lots of different variations. Uh, but in the aggregate, um, the fact that people uh, can bypass hotels completely and either rent out their homes when they're gone or rent other people's homes uh, has added an efficiency to the economy that's uh, just remarkable. And uh, I, I would say it's got to be here to stay. It's, uh, it's, it's been a complete game changer in terms of a technology allowing a, uh, a new asset class, if you will, to emerge and thrive. Yeah. And even some of those, like people are building like destination places purely to put on Airbnb that are like, they don't have the scale to maybe be the traditional hotel, but it's like, it's so perfect for some niche that they create all sorts of demand. It, it does seem to be opening up some new frontiers, huh? Well, that's, that's, that's the point. You know, I know that uh, in one example I heard of um, homes around Orlando where an entire subdivision is being opened up to that ki- kind of uh, fractional uh, either ownership or invo- you know, rental by the week because people want to rent a home like it's their home and go to Disney World for a, a week. But there's these kind of places all over the world popping up. And obviously, it's a, a real success model. Yes. Uh, well, continuing on the real estate vein, um, you know, from from founding Harborside, which has later grown into a multi-billion-dollar company, and and MS, which you know had over a billion dollars in assets when you sold it, um, 
What kind of zero to billion lessons would you have for the rest of us, uh, specifically when it comes to building billion dollar real estate companies? You know, um, there's lots of, first of all, anybody who think luck isn't involved is kidding themselves, but luck does favor those who are prepared and uh, ready to uh, take the plunge. Um, in real estate, uh, there are lots of different ways to think about real estate. In my first project, I bought a building that had been built in 1929 as the largest industrial building in the world, but it was a warehouse. It just happened that the warehouse had large ceilings, high, ceiling heights, and very strong floors. And you know, 70 years later, it could be converted to computer centers with a uh, superior floor load and enough ceiling height to put the air conditioning in. So in real estate, but it happens very often, but it's particularly to real estate, very often what you buy is not what the seller sells. The seller sold a rundown industrial building. I bought an unfinished office building. So my valuation had nothing to do with what I could rent it for industrially. It had to do with what it cost to take this industrial space and turn it into office space and what could I rent it for. And I think um, that's very different than what's called greenfields development, where you buy a piece of land and put a brand new building on it. Because when you put a new building on, you've obviously paid 100% of replacement value because you've just replaced it with a brand new building. And they're, they're really, although many, there are some great developers who can go, quote, either way, I personally lean towards mining value by buying distressed assets because the seller was selling one thing and I was buying with a vision another thing. That's, that's different than uh, developers who develop from the ground up who have uh, you know the great developers who've done that. But of course, one of the big differences is that developers who develop from the ground up can make a lot more money on a rate of return, but if the market turns against them at the wrong time, you can have uh, some of the greatest developers going bankrupt through no fault of their own. Whereas uh, when you buy distressed assets, we used to have backup plans. If we kept it as industrial, we had one approach, and if we converted it to office, we had another. So we had more flexibility. Um, so the risks and the rewards are a little different. Um, but uh, it's all good if you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what did the what did the portfolio look like at MS when you had those billion dollars assets before the exit? So, people may remember in 1987 the stock market crashed, and then it took about a year or two later for the banks to uh, for the real estate market to crash, and a lot of the banks until that point had been lending or over lending on assets where an asset that was worth, pick a number, $10 million, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, the bank had loaned 11 or $12 million on it. You had the same thing happen in the 2008 crisis where people had home loans where the value of the loan was twice what the value of the home was. That's just poor, poor banking. But in this case, um, the banks were so over-levered and the value fell so quickly that in 1991, Literally, the real estate lending market froze. One of those rare instances. It froze because bankers 
need to have a loan to value ratio. They can only underwrite a loan if they know what the value is. And the values were plummeting so quickly that literally the entire real estate lending market froze in 91. And uh, with plummeting values, uh, the banks then, uh, many of them went under and the federal government took over those banks. And the minute the federal government took over those banks, they took all those mortgages that were over the value of the assets, but they started selling them. They auctioned them off. Something called the RTC did that. And that sort of played to my strengths. I was able to identify hundreds of mortgages that banks had to sell where we were one of the few buyers that would come in at a very steep discount. And, uh, you know, when people say, well, you only pay 20 cents on the dollar for a mortgage. Yeah, but we still paid more than anybody else was willing to pay. These were public auctions. Let's, you know, when you, when you discount people who've won public auctions as somehow stealing something, we didn't steal anything. We, we won because we were the highest bidder, not the lowest bidder. And yet, again, we saw uh, we had a longer term vision. And in many of the cases, uh, we were right. So uh, what was fun about that uh, business, MS and company, um, the, the name comes from my initials are MS. But in Hebrew, the word truth is MS. So <laughs> on words. And we had an amazing team uh, because uh, anything with the word RE, rehab, remarket, rebuild, reposition, that's what we did. We took mortgages on buildings that sometimes the owners had abandoned and we had to rebuild them, reposition them, retenant them. Uh, and ultimately, uh, you know, we recovered a much higher portion of the value than uh, what we had paid for it. But uh, when I sold the business in 98, we had about 200 buildings across six states uh, with a total of about 20 million square feet, if that is a number that means anything. Wow. And what percentage office, residential, retail, what, what, what did your mix look like? Uh, Just approximately. In that case, it was all over the place uh, because we were going into, we would literally buy an entire bank's portfolio of defaulted loans and whatever whatever real estate they had made loans on, that's what you got in the package. The very interesting moment, it really represented the shift from um, real estate as a sort of low-tech asset to real estate as a high-tech asset. Um, most people before 1990 thought of a collection of real estate as trees and the forest. You just add up the value. But if you have a whole portfolio, Wall Street knew for many, many years that the value of a portfolio is very different depending on what the systemic risks are within the portfolio. And the way you value portfolios is very different. And uh, I have an MIT modeling background, and we started modeling these portfolios like they were securities. And uh, we weren't the only one to do it, but we were in the vanguard of when Wall Street realized that they could value portfolios. You know, an example, we, we bid on a portfolio with 100 buildings and they would come out and you had about two weeks to assemble a bid. How do you, you know, we were working around the clock trying to value them and so forth. And when you're bidding, you always want to uh, win by an inch and lose by a mile. And uh, 
the uh, uh, we had a situation where we bid on a, a project and we weren't sure how much we should bid, and it took us you know many many hours of negotiating among ourselves whether we should bid 106 million, 106.1 million, 106.2 million, and we eventually uh, 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 bid in whatever we want. And of course, uh, one of the big Wall Street firms bid 181 million. And uh, we said, how could they pay 181 million? We were debating between 106.1 and 106.2. But they had the entire uh, Wall Street machine and they could slice and dice the portfolio into different tranches and sell those tranches off. And I don't know the exact number, but I was told that within a month after they had uh, acquired that portfolio, they had already sold off most of the tranches and recovered all of the money. And so that's why I say when you buy something, if you're buying something that's different than what the seller is selling, or in this case, I was buying what the seller was selling and the Wall Street firm was buying a securitization opportunity and they had a machine that I didn't have. So it was a good, uh, it was a good lesson to learn. Yeah. Um, you know, thinking about leading a company that's going to grow to a billion dollars, you know, one of the jobs for, for CEOs, for leaders, founders is, is coming up with the money. Do you have any tips for, you know, as you're talking, all I can hear is like Warren Buffett quoting his, his mentor, Ben Graham about Mr. Market and waiting for the, waiting for the manic depressive to get depressed and offer for such low prices. But that's such a terrible time to, to raise money because so many of the average investors out there are also feeling like the sky is falling. Can you talk about coming up with the money when the best buying opportunities are there and most other investors are scared? You know, when it comes to money, uh, integrity and reputation are the two most important things for me. And of course, track record. Obviously, there are many scam artists who raised and stolen and fraudulently use money. But in all of my dealings with uh, investors, I've never asked somebody to invest money that I didn't invest my own capital. I never uh, was anything less than uh, 100% transparent. And I always tried to really respect uh, the risk that my investors or partners were taking uh, with me. But you know, one of the things that was interesting, particularly in that period in 1991, because it was a very unique period in um, financial history as the markets were recovering from the real estate debacle in the 87 crash, um, was that um, I put together an amazing Cracker Jack team. We were just, you know, the best of the best as a small team. And I, of course, thought that my investors were geniuses for giving us the money. And we delivered an amazing return. Our investors got close to a 38% IRR on hundreds of millions of dollars. But as I started becoming more of an investor and raising capital less, what I realized was that our investors, their smartest move was not investing in me, but figuring out that investing in distressed real estate at that time was where to put their money. And they could have invested their money with a couple other managers that were competitors of ours. And on average, they would have made a few more or a few less dollars. But the point was that the, um, what Swenson and others have said is that 
the single most important decision you make as a long-term investor is asset allocation. And once you get the asset allocation correctly, then finding the best managers within that allocation, but not the other way around. Get your, get your portfolio balanced according to the kind of broad risks and only then look at the managers because uh, the asset, having the asset allocation correct oh, has been proven over the long term to be dramatically more value and built more valuable in terms of building a portfolio. So I want to talk about how that could apply to entrepreneurs. When you think about uh, not allocating hundreds of millions of dollars, but allocating the next decade or two of your life to try and build a billion dollar company, allocating those hours to the right field you know, would seem, would seem an equally important decision. What kind of advice would you have for founders and CEOs about, about picking what sport they're going to play for the next decade or two? Well, one is just the fundamental question that you brought. When you're a wealth creator, you have no choice but to concentrate on the opportunity that's before you. When you're a wealth preserver, you want to prudently diversify. And those two things are not just mechanical. They reflect people's personalities and their skills. And one of the hardest transition that entrepreneurs who have focused everything on a single opportunity have when they become investors is learning to prudently diversify and not over-concentrate. That's, that's a very important part. Uh, but obviously, um, you know, when you're building businesses, uh, I guess the, the easiest thing is to say, who, who are you? If you don't know yourself, you don't know whether the business you're building is actually um, something that your particular skills, emotional balance, um, and intensity and ambition can all come together to maximize, uh, you know, very often I have, uh, young kids come to me and tell me, you know, I'm graduating business school or I'm graduating college and I have two opportunities, which is better. And I'm saying there is no better. Who are you? Which of them fits your particular, uh, needs and your particular ambitions. So I think fitting ambition to fitting ambition and, and personality to the opportunity is important. I think you know, another thing is making sure that you're realistic about the kind of sacrifices that you're going to have to make. And frankly, uh, particularly if you have a spouse or a significant other, uh, having that spouse or significant other be supportive. I was very lucky. My wife's father was an entrepreneur and she really understood the importance of what it took to give me the space to do what I had to do when I had to do it. And, uh, uh, very often marriages or relationships can become stressed uh, in ways that make it uh, an impossible hammer vice for the entrepreneur uh, trying to do it. And then I guess one other thing, um, I think, I think if, uh, if I had gone to uh, the Sloan School at MIT, which I did, I probably could have got in and out of there in less than a week uh, with much of what I learned if I just had one course and it was on mentors. Uh, the hidden secret to success from my point of view and what every business school should equip its students with is a desire 
to seek out mentors and ultimately become mentors. It's, it's the magic of success. You know, if you take a hundred people in any field and line them up from least successful to most successful, the 50 who are most successful will overwhelmingly have had mentors and the 50 who are least successful will overwhelmingly have had excuses why they never could find mentors. It's just the most, uh, the most important lesson people can take away. So thinking about it as that most important lesson, um, if people want to get better at seeking the right mentors or they want to make the most of a mentor they do have or anything like that, what kind of advice do you have? You know, I think um, wanting to help others is not always the case, but it's a relatively fundamental human emotion. and. Um, very, most most reasonable people, given the opportunity of sharing what they know, or opening a door, or helping somebody solve a problem, will more likely than not uh, be happy to do it if they're given the proper respect and the proper uh, acknowledgments, because uh, people want to be acknowledged. But you know, in many settings, uh, if a young employee in a larger operation finds a more senior person and says in an appropriate way, could you, could you be my mentor? Could you at least show me the ropes, so to speak? More often than not, you'll be surprised that even the most senior people, uh, it touches something that's very human within them to want to help people along. And I think, I think sometimes younger people have a hard time asking, uh, but uh, if they learn to do it in the right way, it'll pay dividends for their whole life. That's such great advice. Um, I, I want to switch gears a little bit because it relates to mentoring and peer coaching and facilitators. Um, you know, Tiger 21 is, is such a standout example of success in that sector. Um, when you think about earning the trust of 1,200 of these people, again, like you said, you know, average if you average out the net worth, it's over hundred million each. What do you think you've done differently that it's become so successful? We walk the talk. We walk the walk. We don't just talk the talk. Uh, for twenty years, we have for over twenty years we have served our members. We are a service organization. We exist to help our members. It's easy for me to say that because I'm first and foremost a member. Most of the value. I've got out of Tiger has been as being a enthusiastic member and being able to learn from other members. The, the business aspect of the business is sort of about 5% of my psychic involvement and what does it mean to be a member and how to be a member. So I think, you know, when you're looking at peer to peer organizations, the first thing you should look at is who owns the organization and how much money are they trying to take out of it? Are they there to serve the members or are they just trying to enrich themselves at the expense of their members? People just have to trust, you know, when they walk in that door, they have to know they can discuss issues, either financial issues or family issues that uh, they just can't discuss anywhere else. That's the key to our success. Yeah. You know, um, I've read your book more than twice. 
I'm probably two and a half times. Um, it's a great book. Uh, I, I'm interested in what have the benefits been for you of, of having Think Bigger out there? Listening to you just say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. This isn't a wildly popular book, uh, but, you know, it was modestly successful uh, in terms of, but I've gotten dozens of letters over the years of somebody saying, your book changed my life, or I've given your book to 10 people, or I can't thank you enough. Those, so I've only gotten, you know, a dozen or so of those letters, but every one of them felt like it made the journey that I went on well worth uh, the effort. The, the, the book is really um, about 40 Tiger members' journeys that I try and weave together using the arc of an entrepreneur's career. When do you begin uh, a business? How do you make it through the middle period? What happens when you want to sell it? What happens after you want to sell it? And I sort of weave my own life story uh, through it. So, um, um, you know, it was an amazing journey of self-exploration. It allowed me to meet people at a level and a detail and an intimacy that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Um, I, I'm not a book writer by, by passion or by, uh, skill set. Uh, right now, most of my time is involved in investing in climate related activities that hopefully will, uh, minimize the negative impact of climate change. I don't have time to even think about writing a book, but, uh, it was a great experience and I'm glad I did it. Well, we're glad you wrote it. Um, uh, so we've covered a lot of different subjects here. What do you think would be, what do you want to end with? Um, you know, what I, uh, what I want to end with was, was interesting because uh, I, I have a meeting with my family to talk about what our goals are and what we've accomplished and what the challenges are. And uh, I feel um, really lucky that when you get engaged in important political or philanthropic issues, it can be reinforcing to your business issues because your businesses exist within, you know, communities of people that had concerns and needs. And, uh, so I just, um, you know, was, was, uh, kind of feeling a bit of gratitude this week that, the time that I spend on working in the philanthropic world, I, I recently uh, dedicated the uh, Goldman Sonnenfeld, my wife's name is Goldman, the Goldman Sonnenfeld School for um, Sustainability and Climate Change at a, a university called Ben-Gurion University. And we've also uh, endowed uh, one of the climate areas at Yale in the law school for the Environmental Protection Clinic. Um, and I'm involved with MIT in something called the Climate Pathways Project. All of these give me access to insights that help me better understand the science and the world in which I'm investing in the venture capital fund that uh, that I'm involved with. And, uh, you know, I just would, uh, these are amazing times. They're unique risks, but unique opportunities. And uh, I just would uh, suggest people get engaged 
you know, lift their lift their eyes up a little and look around and see the world as it truly is. And uh, there's just an endless amount of opportunities, uh, despite all the risks that we see on a daily basis. I love the optimism. So obviously, I think people should be going to audible.com to get their audio copy of, of your book, Think Figure. Uh, it's Amazon and everywhere else. Um, what are the other websites if people want to learn more about Tiger 21 or your fund or, or the other uh, philanthropic things you're doing? Private equity fund. We don't, uh, the, the uh, website for Tiger is tiger21.com, www.tiger21.com. And uh, we, um, um, we love to uh, have people who are interested take a look at it. And uh, it's just been fun being on with you today. Well, thanks again for making so much time. All the best. Okay. Bye, everyone.